0: They knew the end was coming. We all did. I'd worked at the school for five years, first as an after-school teacher and then running the whole program. It was the upper school, so I had students from fourth to eighth grade. And I laugh now like half joke that it prepared me to become a pastor. Not just because I was surrounded by religious people, it was a Jewish school. And not just because I started again to go to church during those years, in part because I was surrounded by religious people who I admired, but also because in some ways working in that school and that after-school program prefigured the shape of my work as a pastor. There were scheduling events and fundraising and community building. Each day I gave a little welcome at the beginning of the after-school program There were activities for enrichment and learning, and there were activities for socializing. There were angry emails from people that I had to answer diplomatically and kindly, which I don't have to do too much of these days, but I definitely have. There were meetings with people who were having a hard time or just wanted to hang out with somebody, people who were from fourth to eighth grade. There was so much cooking and eating together, just like church. I loved that job and I left only when it was time to come to Chicago to go to divinity school. The goodbyes were good and intentional. There was a loving all school gathering that blew me away. There were individual goodbyes with students and coworkers and my boss. There were kind, grateful emails and there were going away gifts. But before all that, there was Ezra standing in the kitchen with me while we made yet another snack. Obviously, I didn't have any favorites, but, you know, Ezra was a favorite. Will you come back and visit us, he wanted to know. I will, I said. But I I think it'll be different. Why? Well, I said, we know each other in a specific way now. We have certain relationships and roles and That's gonna change. Ezra was kind of a precocious kid, maybe in seventh grade, but I do not know what inspired me to such rigorous honesty with him. Are you saying it's gonna be awkward after this when we see each other? I don't know what it's gonna be like, I said. I'm just saying that I think we should make the absolute most of the time we have now, which he found unsatisfying. He made an answer that was kind of like, oh, There are so many parts of my life that I yearn for. I harbor a hardcore nostalgia for the chapters on farms, at camps in Boston as a comic, working with teens, working with kids, evenings in sap houses making maple syrup, when I got to Chicago, grad school, when I was a better runner, but also like the Billy Collins poem, times that were so much more recent. There are early parts of the pandemic that I feel nostalgia for. Like when we were figuring it out, when it all felt clearer because there were fewer options before we knew how long it would go on. To be honest, I've mostly considered my tendency to nostalgia to be sort of like a charming part of my personality. I mean, charming, I guess, to to me, I don't know. It's kind of romanticism. And in the past several years, I've even made good theological use of my tendency to nostalgia. I've set it up against the yearning of God's people in Hebrews 11, strangers and foreigners on the earth, yearning for a homeland, not a place they've come from literally, but a better country. I've preached about nostalgia as a kind of yearning that's written into me, that's written into people, that points us toward God. And anyway, I have certainly never considered it harmful. But this year, my prayer book suggested otherwise. I was truly shocked. In a set of readings, they're about monastic life, In this Part of the prayer book in a set of readings about the kinds of preoccupations that can divert a person away from the reality of what actually is. The August 15th reading described nostalgia as sinful. Nostalgia that says things aren't what they used to be. Well, they aren't, I thought. A nostalgia that refuses to accept what is. I do accept what is, I thought. A nostalgia that results in negative comparison and creates selective memory of the good old days. Hmm, I thought. A nostalgia that allows what if, or if only I had to dominate. Okay. Okay, prayer book. So what, I wondered, could be set free in me if I embraced endings, if I embraced endings harder? What might happen if I accepted, really accepted that things end? I mean, of course, of course I know, I know things end. Jobs, relationships, seasons of lives, life, our very lives, I know. But what if, prayer book, what if with gratitude, What if I considered the chapters of my life, even the ones that I still yearn for and acknowledge that they are truly over? I'm not ready. They knew the end was coming. Jesus had started to talk about it. Every version of the transfiguration story happens after Jesus started to talk about the end. In Matthew and Mark and Luke, he began to teach them that he must experience great suffering, that he must be killed. He began to show them that he must go to Jerusalem and be killed. And in each version, about a week later, he took Peter, James, and John. Of course, he didn't have favorites, but you know, it was just them. They went up to a high mountain to pray was the kind of event that's almost designed to be transformative, designed to be mystical, staged to be dreamy, and it was. While they were there, his face changed. It shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white, (laughs) Mark adds, like no one on earth could bleach them in case you were wondering. And then suddenly, then he was with Moses and Elijah and they were just, they were talking. They were talking with each other, including about what would happen in Jerusalem. And Peter caught up in it the way he tended to get caught up in things, in anything, said, it's so good to be here. Let's make dwellings for each of you. He didn't know what to say, scripture says, but he knew this was a moment that should be captured somehow. And instead there was a voice from a cloud that was surrounding them a voice that told them, maybe Peter in particular, listen, listen to Jesus. And then just as suddenly, they looked around and there was no one else with them, only Jesus. Everything Everything comes to an end, every beautiful transformative night, every wonderful life-changing chapter, this mystical night on the mountain ended. This time of miracles and healing and preaching from a man unlike anyone they'd ever known was ending. They knew it was coming. But couldn't they just somehow stay in it? There on the mountaintop with all the beauty and and perspective and wonder with all the possibility, that feeling of excitement and, and intimacy and privilege, it's just us seeing this, it's the kind of moment that you know, even while it's happening will stick with you, maybe for the rest of your life. What's the harm in staying there, in lingering just for a bit and soaking it in? What's the harm in looking back at that glorious moment? Instead, Jesus said, it's okay, let's let's go. Instead, Jesus said, don't tell anyone else about this. He said not to talk about it until after he was raised from the dead and, and there it was again, the end. There's so many things that don't end well that don't have a good ending, I mean. So many things just stop. What could be set free in us if we embraced endings, if we planned for them, if we saw it coming and accepted it and marked it with gratitude or relief or both? What might might we make room for or be freed of? What other kinds of endings might we be better prepared for? Peter didn't like Jesus talking about the end at all. The first time Jesus told the disciples what was going to happen, you know, the week before the mountaintop experience, Jesus took him aside and had a lot to say. God forbid he started. He rebuked Jesus trying to find a way around the end until Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. It's happening. The end is coming. And Peter made an answer kind of like, oh, When what is now is good, when what has been was good, or when what is next is uncertain or unknown, when all change represents loss, it's understandable. From Peter, from seventh grade Ezra, from me, I can give myself that grace. But when the party's over, when the beautiful transformative evening is over, ending well can be a gift a gift that honors what has happened and makes room for what is to come. Between Peter and Jesus, there's still so much to happen, so much of their relationship, so many hard, awful things, so much love and reconciliation Ultimately, Jesus saying that Peter was going to be the bedrock on which the whole Christian church would be built. Peter, impulsive, enthusiastic, reckless, uneven, passionate Peter, whose whole time with Jesus had prepared him for what was to come, a life surrounded by community of faith, miracles, fundraising, preaching, so many gatherings to eat together. Peter had been formed by all that had happened for all that was to come, as each of us is at every moment, at every now. I am not quite ready to concede that nostalgia is a sin. But when I remember that moment with Ezra, I am so grateful that I really knew something was ending, that I could see it coming and name it and mark it that I could make the most of the time we had and soak it in. I don't know what allowed me that clarity, that honesty. I didn't know all that was coming, but I did know I wouldn't be back there, not in the same way. I've stayed in touch with some of the adults from that job, quite close with one of them. As far as I remember, after I left, although I did go back and visit, I never saw Ezra again. But that work, those years and that community around schedules and fundraisers and snacks and events, making my little welcome to a group who found themselves together. It prepared me for what was next. And for once. I saw it coming. I said goodbye. I was ready.